Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference McNuggets, Part 3. Before getting into tonight's episode, I want to make a correction on something that I reported yesterday as part of the news. It involves the temple closure in Utah that was done by the LDS Church after an individual who went to the temple not only was diagnosed the following week with the coronavirus, but actually passed away from the coronavirus. I had said in yesterday's episode that this was a temple worker. That may be in error. It may not have been a temple worker. It may have been a temple patron. But unfortunately, that difference does not change the gravity of the exposure that was caused by this temple patron to all the other people in the temple, and especially within the context of a temple endowment session. Now, we do not know for sure at this point whether this individual had attended the temple to participate in a temple endowment session, but let's just say that the odds are high that that is the case because that's what most people do when they go to the temple. Now, those of you who have actually been to the temple for an endowment session know that part of the endowment session, even as a temple patron and not as a temple worker, involves four instances during the endowment when you shake hands in a certain way with a temple patron. In other words, there are four times when the temple patron shakes hands with the temple worker and the temple worker, of course, shakes hands at the same time with the temple patron. And once again, without getting into the details because of the sacredness of the ordinance, and I know that many people do consider it sacred and I want to respect that, but during the process of the endowment itself, there are four instances in which patrons to the temple shake hands with a temple worker. And this is in the context of the temple worker shaking hands with everybody else in the temple endowment session. And what that means is, if a person who has the coronavirus is there at the temple, just as a patron participating in the endowment, they are going to shake hands with a temple worker, and the temple worker is then going to shake hands with everybody else in the temple endowment session, or at least with the men in the temple endowment session. And as I say, this happens four times. So imagine this with me. During the first shaking of hands, the person with the coronavirus shakes hands with the temple worker, who then shakes hands with everybody else after he has shaken hands with the person with the coronavirus. Now the temple worker, having shaken hands with the person with the coronavirus, participates in the second shaking of hands with all the other attendees at the temple endowment, including once again the person with the coronavirus. And then a third time, the same thing happens. And then a fourth time, the same thing happens. And actually, there are more instances of shaking hands in the temple endowment than just these four times because it will culminate at the veil when the individual, the temple patron who has the coronavirus, shakes hands with the temple worker on the other side of the veil who is representing the Lord. And once again, without going into details, I think this can be accurately described as a prolonged holding of hands in different formations with the person on the other side of the veil. So just because this was a temple patron and not a temple worker does not mitigate the degree of exposure that likely occurred in the temple when this temple patron was attending what was most likely, as I say, an endowment session. At the end of the prolonged handshake at the veil, the temple worker says, enter into the presence of the Lord. Now, we typically understand that as being symbolic and that after that pronouncement is made, the temple patron may then pass through the veil and into the celestial room. However, in circumstances such as these, it appears that the pronouncement, enter into the presence of the Lord, may have been more literal than symbolic. So I just wanted to correct that item from yesterday's podcast. 
And as I say, it was only after this temple patron passed away the following week from going to the temple, passed away from the coronavirus, that the church closed the temple. I also said that the church had closed all of its temples. Apparently, that was not quite true either. The church has closed most of its temples. It has closed upwards of 100 temples. However, there are still quite a large number of temples that are still operating throughout the world, although they are operating on a more limited basis. Now I want to talk to you about a special announcement that was made yesterday by President Russell M. Nelson, in which he invites the members of the church and indeed the entire world to join him in a fast this coming Sunday on March 29th, 2020. Once again, today's date is March 27th, Friday of 2020. So in two days time, President Nelson wants the entire world to join with the LDS Church in fasting and prayer to God to stay the coronavirus. This is a short video presentation that is on the church's website. Let me find the audio of that announcement. It's about a minute and 17 seconds long, and let me play it here so you can hear this invitation from the prophet. Play the tape. As a physician and surgeon, I have great admiration for medical professionals, scientists, and all who are working around the clock to curb the spread of COVID-19. I am also a man of faith, and I know that during these challenging times, we can be strengthened and lifted as we call upon God and His Son, Jesus Christ, the Master Healer. I invite you to join with me in a worldwide fast, for all whose health permits, to pray for relief from the physical, emotional, and economic effects of this global pandemic. I invite members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints everywhere, along with our many friends, to fast and pray this Sunday, March 29th. Let us unite our faith to plead for physical, spiritual, and other healing throughout the entire world. The Lord understands the feelings you are experiencing. He loves and cares for you, as I do, too. Now, as I've been thinking about this invitation from President Nelson for fasting and prayer on this coming Sunday, March 29th, 2020, a number of thoughts have been occurring to me, which I wanted to share with you. The first thought is that what President Nelson is doing and what the church will be doing this Sunday is not a bad thing. Fasting and prayer to God to stay the effects of the coronavirus is not a bad thing. On the other hand, it may not be a particularly helpful thing. That part, of course, is a matter of faith. And the very act of fasting and prayer to God to get him to halt the coronavirus, or at least the effects of the coronavirus. By the way, if you go back and you listen very carefully to what it is that President Nelson says, he does not actually say that he wants everybody to fast and pray to stop the coronavirus itself. Instead, he modifies that a bit and says to stop the effects of the coronavirus, whether that's spiritually, emotionally, physically, or economically. Now, I believe that President Nelson chooses his words very carefully. And I can't help but notice the difference between a call to fast and pray to stop the coronavirus itself versus a call to stop the effects of the coronavirus. But the invitation is framed in such a way that 
unless you pay very careful attention to what he's saying, you might not notice that subtle distinction. Indeed, it would be hard to say that we're going to stop the effects of the coronavirus without stopping the coronavirus itself. And yet, stopping the emotional effects of the coronavirus, such as the widespread fear that it is causing among members of the church, is something that is much more likely to happen than stopping the coronavirus itself. What I am suggesting is that President Nelson has framed his invitation in such a way that it is much more likely to see fulfillment than if he had phrased it the other way. Lifting the effects of the coronavirus is much more likely to happen than to stop the coronavirus itself. And now that we know that the church has literally billions and billions of dollars in an investment account, much of which is liquid, the church could probably do a lot more to stop the economic effects of the coronavirus by accessing some of those funds and helping out the members of the church who are actually the people who contributed the funds in the first place than simply to pray to God to stop those economic effects of the coronavirus. Remember that faith without works is dead. And while they're liberating some of that money, which by the way, they said they were saving for a rainy day. Remember, it is a rainy day fund. Well, it's not going to be raining too much more than a worldwide pandemic like we're undergoing right now. So maybe it would be a good idea to liberate some of those rainy day funds in order to help people other than just the Latter-day Saints, in order to help the medical professionals who are on the front line of this battle with the materials and equipment that they so desperately need and which are currently in such short supply. That might be a good use for some of those funds right now as well. But getting back to the language that President Nelson uses in framing this invitation and the difference between stopping the coronavirus versus stopping the effects of the coronavirus, this subtle shift in phrasing indicates to me the lack of faith that President Nelson has in God and in the prayers and fasting of the saints to be able to get God to stop the coronavirus itself. If he had that faith that God would stop the coronavirus in response to the prayers and supplication of the saints, even at the direction of a prophet of God, then I expect he would have said so in his invitation. Not only that, if President Nelson had faith in God to stop the coronavirus, I expect that he would have taken actions that would have been commensurate with that faith. Let me tell you what I mean. If President Nelson believed that he and the saints had power to get God to stop the coronavirus through fasting and prayer this coming Sunday, I have to notice that this coming Sunday is one week prior to April General Conference. If President Nelson really believed that the prayers of the saints this Sunday would stop the coronavirus, then I would have expected an announcement to be made that General Conference is going to go on as usual and that all the saints should attend conference as usual at the conference center. Why? Because if the coronavirus is going to be stopped a week before General Conference, well, there's not going to be any problem with anybody catching the coronavirus through attending General Conference in the first weekend of April. But of course, President Nelson did not do that. And once again, I'm not saying that prayer and fasting to God is a bad thing. All I'm suggesting is that if President Nelson really believed that this would have an effect on God's will and actually turn back the coronavirus, then he would be taking actions that would be consistent with that expression of faith on his part. The very fact that he has not made that change and that general conference is going to continue to be done in an empty general conference center and saints are still being encouraged to stay at home and watch general conference from a remote location is suggestive to me at least that President Nelson really does not have any faith that God is going to turn back the coronavirus as the result of the prayers and fasting of the saints. I find your lack of faith disturbing. 
I also have to make the somewhat cynical, I apologize for this, but somewhat cynical observation that President Nelson is now choosing this time to make this call for fasting and prayer. He did not do it a week ago. He did not do it two weeks ago. He did not do it three weeks ago. But whether intentionally or unintentionally, President Nelson has chosen a very optimal time in which to invite the members of the church to pray and fast to God because, due to the government-mandated restrictions on social distancing and shutting down businesses that has occurred throughout the United States for the past several weeks, we are beginning to see, and I hope this continues, but we are beginning to see a flattening of the increase of coronavirus cases and coronavirus deaths. And once again, I hope this trend continues, but it is clear to me that this trend is the result of science, of technology, of our understanding of viruses, what causes viruses, and how to stop viruses from being transmitted, specifically the coronavirus. So as I say, President Nelson has chosen an optimal time in which to invite members of the church to fast and pray to God, which is at this very point when several weeks, even months into the coronavirus outbreak, we are beginning to see a flattening of the curve of transmission and infection. And if that curve continues to flatten, I expect President Nelson and other members of the church will chalk up the flattening of the curve to their day of fasting and prayer, when in actuality, it is something that has been happening because of the actions that have been taken by the government based upon the best information we have from science. But at this point, honestly, I don't care who takes credit. I just hope that the flattening of the curve of transmission and the rate of infection continues to decrease. Okay, let's get back to my General Conference McNuggets from October of 2019. In the last episode, we finally got done with the last talk in the first session, the Saturday morning session of General Conference from last October. The Saturday afternoon session began with the sustaining of general authorities, the Area 70s and the general officers of the church, which was presented by President Henry B. Eyring. Now, this whole process of sustaining officers in the LDS church during general conference used to be something that was very easy to do. Everybody simply raised their hand. Nobody shouted anything in objection to the sustaining of the leadership of the church. But in recent years, there have been some members of the church who have gone into general conference and have shouted out that they do not sustain the leaders of the church or shouting out that they need to stop protecting sexual predators. And in this day and age, it has now become something that is not so easy, but is actually fraught with peril for the individual who draws the short straw and has to present the general authorities for a sustaining vote of the members. Indeed, when this began happening a number of years ago, it seemed to have caught the leaders of the church completely flat-footed, but they were quick to respond, seeing that this was going to be a rather regular event, that people might shout something in opposition to the sustaining of the leaders of the church. They began to change the language. It was customary for decades, for the leaders of the church, after the vote had been taken, and I use vote euphemistically here because it's not really a vote, but after the vote had been taken, it was very customary for the leader of the church who had presented the officers for the sustaining to say at the end, President, the vote has been unanimous. Well, when people started actually yelling out their disapproval of leaders of the church, they could no longer say that with a straight face. And so they stopped saying, the voting has been unanimous. Instead, they began to say, the vote has been noted. And we all remember President Uchtdorf, God bless him, getting a little bit rattled by the show of disapprobation from some members of the audience. And instead of saying the vote has been noted, he said, the note has been voted. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's something like I would say. But in last general conference, it does not appear that President Eyring even said 
the vote has been noted. Instead, he just says those in favor may manifest it, those opposed, if any, may manifest it. Eventually, if the votes of disapproval continue to increase, they may have to change that language and say those in favor, if any, may manifest it. But at the end of the voting, he does say another sentence that has become adopted in recent years, which is those who opposed any of the proposals should contact their stake president. Now, it used to be that if somebody voted opposed in general conference, they were identified, they were asked politely to meet with a general authority to discuss his opposing vote or her opposing vote and why it was that they were opposing. But now things have gotten out of hand. They don't really want to know. They're not really interested in why it is that anybody might be opposing the leaders of the church. And therefore, they don't want to hear what it is they have to say. And so because of that, it has now become customary to direct people with an opposing vote not to talk to a general authority, but to talk to their local stake president, which is the equivalent of being in grade school and being told by the teacher that if you don't want to sustain her as the teacher of the class, then you should contact the principal. Okay, the first talk of the Saturday afternoon session is given by Elder David Bednar. It's called Watchful Unto Prayer Continually. And here's where Elder David Bednar gets an extended metaphor about cheetahs and gazelles on the plains of Africa. Now, he doesn't call them cheetahs and gazelles. That's something that I would have understood immediately. Instead, he talks about cheetahs and topis, T-O-P-I-S, topis. And these topis are apparently the specific name of a specific kind of gazelle or antelope. David Bednar, as you know, is very fond of these types of metaphors. He first broke upon the public consciousness with his famous metaphor about pickles, but now he has gone from flora to fauna, from vegetables to animals, and he will give us an extended metaphor about African wildlife. Now, I mentioned that Elder Packer gets a couple of head nods in this general conference, and this is the second nod to Elder Packer because in the second paragraph of this talk, Elder Bednar says, in April of 1976, Elder Boyd K. Packer spoke specifically to the youth of the church in general conference. In his classic message entitled, Spiritual Crocodiles, he described how during an assignment in Africa, he observed well-camouflaged crocodiles waiting to prey on unsuspecting victims. He then likened the crocodiles to Satan, well, no big surprise there, who preys on unwary youth by camouflaging the deadly nature of sin. And so David Bednar is basically going to give us a warmed over version of Elder Packer's parable, but he's going to talk about it in terms of cheetahs and topies instead of crocodiles who are waiting at the water hole to catch and eat unsuspecting game that comes down for a little drink of water in the middle of the day under the hot African sun. He's going to talk about essentially and basically the exact same type of thing, except he's going to talk about it with the predators of cheetahs and the prey of topies. And he talks about how he and his wife spent almost two hours watching two cheetahs stalking a large group of topies, Africa's most common and widespread antelopes. Now, I'm not going to read this whole talk because he goes on and on about what it is that he and his wife observe, but basically they observe two cheetahs in tandem hunting a large herd of antelopes. I'm just going to say antelopes because topies just doesn't do it for me, okay? They're hunting a herd of antelopes and they end up stalking through the high grass and one cheetah will stalk forward and then raise his head and the other cheetah will then go down and crawl through the grass and then raise his head and then the other one will go and they'll keep getting closer and closer and then eventually, eventually the antelope will see the cheetahs approaching. At least hopefully they'll see the cheetahs approaching, right? Hopeful for the antelope, not hopeful for the cheetahs. There are two sides to this story, right? And Elder Bednar is only telling us the story from the side of 
the antelope. It's a good thing for the antelope to not be eaten from the antelope's perspective. From the cheetah's perspective, not so good. But hopefully the antelope will see the cheetah coming and then they'll run away and then they'll stop and then they'll start grazing again and then the cheetahs will continue to move forward in that same method toward the antelope hoping to get a meal. In an attempt to make the antelope more like the LDS church, he talks about how some old and wise antelope will stand up on a little hill so that they can get a better vantage point and be able to see better what's going on around. And these older and wiser antelopes standing on the little hill to get a better vantage point are likened, of course, to the prophets and apostles in the Lord's church. And from this observation that he and his wife did for over two hours in Africa, he draws a number of rather obvious lessons. Lesson number one was beware of evils beguiling disguises, because of course he is going to liken the cheetahs to evil and the antelopes to members of the church. So beware of evils beguiling disguises. Beware of the cheetahs sneaking up on you who just want to have you for lunch. Lesson number two, stay awake and be alert. Well, that is definitely a challenge, especially during general conference, but we try our best. Lesson three, understand the intent of the enemy. Well, of course, the intent of the cheetahs is to eat you if you are looking at it from the point of view of the antelopes. And under each of these lessons, he goes on and on for a bit and then quotes some scripture in order to support his point. And under this lesson number three, understand the intent of the enemy, he states, a cheetah is a predator that naturally preys on other animals all day, every day. A cheetah is a predator. And I highlight this sentence because a similar idea will be stated by another speaker in a very different context. But all day, every day, a cheetah is a predator. And of course, he likens the cheetahs to Satan. And here he quotes President Russell M. Nelson. Now, President Nelson is the most often quoted person in General Conference. That much is not surprising. But in the context of this story, he quotes a very controversial statement by President Russell M. Nelson that has to do with homosexuality and why it is wrong. And here's the quote. President Russell M. Nelson has taught that spiritual safety ultimately lies in never taking the first enticing step toward going where you should not go and doing what you should not do. As human beings, we all have physical appetites necessary for our survival. These appetites are absolutely essential for the perpetuation of life. So what does the adversary do? He attacks us through our appetites. He tempts us to eat things we should not eat. And here's the quote. He tempts us to eat things we should not eat or drink things we should not drink and to love as we should not love. Now, this talk by Elder Ballard has nothing to do, at least ostensibly, with homosexuals. And yet he's going to put this quote in the middle of his talk anyway. So while Elder Bednar is going to talk about something that is ostensibly completely unrelated from homosexuality, such as cheetahs hunting topis, nevertheless, he's going to work it into his talk anyway, much the same way as even though Elder Oaks was talking about something as ostensibly unrelated from homosexuality as the spirit world, he was going to get in a reference to the proclamation on the family and refer to it as doctrine, indeed a classic example of doctrine in the church. This is another move that Elder Oaks frequently makes, which is time and time again to try and pound home the point that the family proclamation is revelation to the church. It is binding doctrine upon the church. And even though it has never been presented to the membership of the church for a sustaining vote, it nevertheless qualifies as scripture. So even though we don't have one talk 
from any speaker devoted to the subject of homosexuality, we will still find scattered throughout the different talks bits and pieces of the church's stance on homosexuality, even in the midst of messages where they do not naturally belong. Once again, the quote from President Nelson in Elder Bednar's talk, he tempts us to eat things we should not eat, to drink things we should not drink, and to love as we should not love. And then Elder Bednar comments upon this quote from President Nelson in a somewhat ambiguous way, just like Elder Nelson was somewhat ambiguous. He didn't come out and actually say homosexuality, but the message is obviously implied. Elder Bednar will do a similar thing where he states, one of the ultimate ironies of eternity is that the adversary who is miserable precisely because he has no physical body invites and entices us to share in his misery through the improper use of our bodies. Well, what does Elder Bednar mean by the improper use of our bodies? Well, that could mean a whole lot of things, but definitely contained within that whole lot of things is the expression of love between homosexuals. Oh, and then Elder Bednar says, the very tool he does not have. Now, I'm sure he doesn't mean tool in a literal way, the way I'm thinking. I got to get my mind out of the gutter here. But he says, the very tool he, Satan, the very tool Satan does not have and cannot use is thus the primary target of his attempts to lure us to physical and spiritual destruction. Well, I'll let you diagram that sentence any way you want. I'm thinking this talk could have used another set of eyes to perhaps remove anything such as this that could be taken as a double entendre. <laughs> Going on, after he draws these four rather obvious lessons from the cheetahs and the antelopes, he invites the members of his audience to take this illustration, to take this metaphor, to take this hunting scene that he has observed and now recounted in general conference, and to use that to draw their own lessons. From the experience, here's what he says. I invite and encourage you to reflect on this episode with the cheetahs and the topies and identify additional lessons for you and your family. Please remember always that your home is the true center of gospel learning and living. Hashtag coronavirus prediction. Well, let me share with you a lesson that occurred to me from this episode with the cheetahs and the topies. I don't know why it is that we always want to associate the predators in nature with Satan and the animals being preyed upon as the Latter-day Saints. Maybe this goes back a long way, back to talking about the Christians as sheep and the enemies of the church as wolves. Those references go back to the New Testament. But I don't think we have to look at the food chain in this particular way. Indeed, I note that the cheetahs travel in pairs, much like Mormon missionaries who also go out two by two to preach the gospel. And like Mormon missionaries, these cheetahs are hunting by stealthily approaching the herd. The goal, of course, from the cheetah's point of view is to claim one of the antelopes for themselves. And if they could claim the entire herd, I'm sure they would do that as well. And like the antelopes in David Bednar's story, even though the antelopes may see the cheetahs approaching and recognize them for what they are and run away and begin grazing in another place, the cheetahs are not dissuaded, but they continue their inexorable stalking of the herd with one goal and only one goal in mind. Now, obviously, this has no meaning in the real world. It is simply a thought experiment. And yet, using this particular story related by Elder Bednar, if we switch the roles for the animals that he proposes, I think we can learn just as much from the episode with the cheetahs being Mormons and the topis being non-Mormons. The next talk is by Elder Reuben Aliod. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Actually, I think I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. 
Alliod, A-L-L-I-A-U-D of the 70. It's titled, Found Through the Power of the Book of Mormon. Oh, and here he talks about his conversion to the LDS Church and his conversion to the Book of Mormon. It is a somewhat interesting story. It's one paragraph. I'll read it a little bit quickly here. Just before I turned 15, I was invited by my uncle to spend some time with him and his family here in the United States. This would be a great opportunity for me to learn some English. My uncle had converted to the church many years before, and he had a great missionary spirit. That is probably why my mother, without my knowing, spoke with him and said she would agree to the invitation on one condition, that he did not try to convince me to become a member of his church, i.e. the LDS church, of course. We were Catholics, and we had been for generations, and there was no reason to change. My uncle was in complete agreement and kept his word to the point that he didn't want to answer even simple questions about the church. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because of the very next sentence in the talk. Of course, he says, of course, what my uncle and his sweet wife Marjorie could not avoid was being who they were. And when I read that, I had to laugh because it sounded an awful lot like what Elder Bednar had said about the cheetahs in the talk immediately preceding. Remember how it was that I looked at cheetahs as the Mormons? Here was that quote from the talk by Elder Bednar. A cheetah is a predator that naturally preys on other animals. All day, every day, a cheetah is a predator. And then the quote from the next talk, talking about good and faithful Mormons. Of course, what my uncle and his sweet wife Marjorie could not avoid was being who they were. So apparently it's not only leopards who cannot change their spots, cheetahs also have a tough time with it as well. And it seems that what can be said of cheetahs can also be said of Mormons. One cannot change one's nature. So the speaker now goes on and talks about his conversion to the church, and then he talks about the Book of Mormon and its importance in the conversion process. And he talks about what we need to do in order to obtain a testimony of the Book of Mormon. And we all know the drill. You have to read it, you have to ponder it, and you have to pray to God in the name of Christ to know that it's true. And if you do so, God will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's basic Mormonism, Moroni chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. But this speaker adds another condition to the formula. And that other condition is to not reject the Book of Mormon prematurely as the Word of God based upon what other people have said who don't believe that it's the Word of God. In other words, don't listen to the critics. Here's what he says. For this reason, any reader who commits to a sincere study of it, the Book of Mormon, with the spirit of prayer, will not only learn about Christ, but will learn from Christ, especially if, especially if they make the decision to try the virtue of the word and not reject it prematurely due to prejudiced unbelief by what others have said. And not just what others have said, about what others have said about things that they have never read. So here is another warning shot across the bow in general conference to members to not listen to anti-Mormons, not to read anti-Mormon literature because they have prejudiced unbelief. And not only that, they haven't even read the Book of Mormon apparently. So from this speaker's point of view, anybody who has anything to say against the Book of Mormon is speaking out of ignorance and only because they have never read the Book of Mormon. And if they had actually read the Book of Mormon, well, they wouldn't be saying things against the Book of Mormon. They would no longer have prejudiced unbelief. They also would be believers in the Book of Mormon and presumably members of the LDS Church. So now everybody in the world gets divided into two camps. Those who read the Book of Mormon and pray about it and they will join the church and those who do not read the Book of Mormon who are the critics of the Book of Mormon. You cannot actually read the Book of Mormon and have any criticism of it, according to this speaker's line of thought. 
Let me read that quote once again, because I think it's important. Especially if they, the reader of the Book of Mormon, especially if they make the decision to try the virtue of the word and not reject it prematurely due to prejudiced unbelief by what others have said about things that they have never read. It's a remarkable statement. Next, President Nelson gets up and he introduces the subject of changes, policy changes, that the church had recently made related to witnesses to baptism and sealing ordinances. You may remember this. And he lists these in three bullet points. Number one, a proxy baptism for a deceased person may be witnessed by anyone holding a current temple recommend, including a limited use recommend. Now, the actual change is it doesn't have to be a Melchizedek priesthood holder who witnesses the baptisms in the temple, the proxy baptisms. It can be a woman as long as she holds a temple recommend. But notice it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that that's what the change is. It doesn't say that women can now do it too. It just says a proxy baptism for a deceased person may be witnessed by anyone holding a current temple recommend. And the same pattern of not really saying what the change is, but just announcing the new policy is going to continue for the second and third bullet points. What I notice is they rarely say what is changing or why. Now, the change is that women can now do these things. And in some instances, youth can do these things as well and not just men. And in the case of witnessing regular baptisms, that men can do these things and not just priesthood holders. But they never actually come out and say these things. It's like the 1978 revelation, which lifted the priesthood ban on black men. It doesn't say that black men can now hold the priesthood. If you go back and read it, it says that now all worthy men may receive the priesthood. See how they announced the new policy without saying what it is that's actually changing. Not that men of African descent may now receive the priesthood. So let me read the other two bullet points that he announces. Once again, the first one was, a proxy baptism for a deceased person may be witnessed by anyone holding a current temple recommend, i.e. men and women, including a limited use recommend, i.e. the youth. Number two, any endowed member with the current temple recommend may serve as a witness to sealing ordinances, living and proxy. So once again, they're allowing women now, as long as they're endowed and have a current temple recommend, to be a witness to the sealing ordinance, i.e. temple marriage. That's a change too. But once again, they just say any person can do it as long as they fit these qualifications. They don't say that now women can do it. Number three, any baptized member of the church may serve as a witness of the baptisms of a living person. So now we're outside the temple. The first two have to do with ordinances inside the temple. Now we're just talking about the baptism at the font in the local LDS chapel. Prior to this, it had to be two male priesthood holders who served as witnesses to the baptism to make sure that the baptismal prayer was said correctly, to make sure that the immersion was complete, to make sure that the ordinance was done correctly. And now it can be not just a man, it can be a woman who does this. In other words, a non-priesthood holder, it can be a woman, or it can be a youth as well. Here's what they say. Number three, any baptized member of the church so you got to be at least eight years old and baptized, right? Any baptized member of the church may serve as a witness of the baptism of a living person. This change pertains to all baptisms outside the temple. So once again, in all three of these new announcements, these new highlights that President Nelson mentions, he frames the change in such a way as to not say what the change really is or how it's different from the way things were before. And I've got to think there's probably a reason behind it. And that reason probably has something to do with the fact that the church does not want to talk about how exclusive it has been based upon race and gender in the past, but instead talk in general terms about how inclusive it's going to be going forward. You know something? I'm getting bored with this. General conference is boring. 
I'm reading through all these general conference talks, even though I'm trying to talk about highlights and I'm trying to talk about them in as entertaining a fashion as I possibly can, I'm still getting bored, which makes me think that maybe you're getting bored too. Because now they're going to introduce the changes that were made in the youth program with the young men and the young women and the procedural changing and shifting of responsibilities of the bishop as it relates to the young men and the young women. And what President Nelson is going to do is he's going to hand the baton off to make these announcements of these changes to another person. And that other person is Elder Quentin L. Cook. Elder Cook goes on to say, Before I share those adjustments, we express our sincere appreciation for the exceptional way members have responded to developments in the ongoing restoration of the gospel. As President Nelson suggested last year, you have taken your vitamins. Now, wait a second. This is the whole prophecy about take your vitamins, right? Which was the prophecy of the coronavirus. It appears that in October of last year, Elder Cook did not understand that statement by President Nelson to be a prophecy of the coronavirus because he says that the members have already taken your vitamins. He says, as President Nelson suggested last year, you have taken your vitamins. But, and now I'll put my apologist hat on, even though Elder Cook understood President Nelson's suggestion about taking your vitamins to have already been fulfilled in October of 2019, that does not mean that this is not a prophecy that could have multiple fulfillments and could still be a prophecy of the coronavirus. So there. While Elder Cook is talking to the youth of the church about the changes in their program, he also has to bring up this theme, which we've talked about in general conference before, indeed, in this general conference, about technology and smartphones and the access to information that is had by members of the church as not necessarily a good thing and potentially a dangerous thing. Here's what he says. Our youth live in an exciting but also challenging time. The choices available have never been more dramatic. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. See, one example, the modern smartphone, as opposed to the ancient smartphone, I suppose, the modern smartphone provides access to incredibly important and uplifting information. Well, that would be the information on the church website, of course, including family history and the Holy Scriptures. See, on the other hand, it contains foolishness, immorality, and evil not readily available in the past. And once again, I'm thinking, is he talking about pornography or is he talking about information, true information, correct information about the history of the LDS church? And once again, I have to ask the question, between the two of those, which is seen as the greater threat by church leaders today? And now he's going to talk about the change in the youth programs, the change in the youth curriculum, the change in the youth activities, and the change in the organizational structure. And frankly, I find this all very boring. And I expect that you probably would too. Maybe some of you would find this fascinating, but to me, it is not like watching paint dry. It's like watching dry paint dry. <laughs> A couple of things that I did note, however, is that President Nelson continues his reference to the youth of the church as a battalion, as a military metaphor. In the comments President Nelson gives that introduce Elder Cook, he uses this phrase twice. He says, you will remember that I have invited the youth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to enlist in the Lord's Youth Battalion. And he says it again later on in the same paragraph. In each ward, the Lord's Youth Battalion is led by a bishop. It's clear that this is a phrase that he wants to catch on. And indeed, it does catch on, at least as far as Elder Cook is concerned, because he's going to mention the same expression in his talk immediately afterward. And that's where he talks about the third initiative. The third initiative is organizational changes to make youth a more significant focus of our bishops and other leaders. This focus must be spiritually powerful and help our youth become the youth battalion. President Nelson has asked them 
to become. Now, Christians have long been compared to a marching army, and we find it in many of our hymns. Indeed, in many Christian hymns, hymns such as Onward Christian Soldiers, it's not a new idea. There are some people who find this expression of youth battalion, by which President Nelson refers to the young members of the LDS Church, to be somewhat unsettling. And for some people, it raises the specter of the Hitler Youth from Nazi Germany. The Hitler Youth was the sole official boys' youth organization in Germany and was partially a paramilitary organization. Now, the youth of the church are really not a paramilitary organization, but it's the expression, the youth battalion, promoted by President Nelson, that raises concern in some quarters. Let me just make it clear here. I think this is just something that President Nelson thinks is a catchy phrase. I don't think he's actually going to make the youth programs of the church be a paramilitary organization. So let me just put that out there up front, okay? When the Fuhrer says, we is the master race, we hire, hire. Right in the Fuhrer's face, not to love the Fuhrer is a great disgrace, so we hire, hire. Right in the Fuhrer's face. But I do note that at the same time that President Nelson is promoting this usage and this expression for the youth of the church, they are also taking away the other expressions and the other names for the youth that have been with the church for many decades. We will, of course, still have priests, teachers, and deacons, but as to the young women, we will no longer have beehives, Maya maids, and laurels. That particular part of the announcement will be made by one of the women's leaders in the Saturday evening women's session of conference, which will unfortunately take away one of the best jokes I know about the Mormon church, that being that in the Mormon church, it is not a good thing for the bishop to rest on his laurels. <laughs> so at the same time, we are taking away from the young women, at least, the older and traditional and less militant names for their organizations. The church is promoting the usage of a new name for all the youth being the Youth Battalion. And that's something to pay attention to in the upcoming General Conference to see if that gets repeated, and if so, how many times. My best guess is yes, and at least three. One other thing about this statement by Elder Cook that I wanted to mention is that what I'm beginning to see more and more is that as these procedural changes are being made in the church, what I'm hearing is that this is being done not as a new change, but actually it's being done to bring the church more into alignment with the revelations that the Lord has already given. For example, here's what Elder Cook says, accordingly to align with this revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's just read Doctrine and Covenants, section 107, verse 15. That gets a bit dry, so I'm not going to actually go into it. The important point is that he says, accordingly, to align with this revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants, young men presidencies at the ward level will be discontinued. Now, they don't have to say that. They don't have to say that we're making this change to make it align more with the revelation the Lord gave through Joseph Smith. But they do that because they want to have the scriptural underpinning. Apparently, it's not sufficient to have the revelation being received at midnight by President Nelson and to make a change. Instead, at the same time they're saying they're making changes and the restoration is ongoing, they're also reaching back to the revelations from the Doctrine and Covenants and saying that these changes are being made to bring the church more in align with what the Lord has already revealed. Now, that is a two-edged sword because you cannot say that we are making a change to align more with the revelations that were given in the Doctrine and Covenants without saying that before this change, the church was not as much in line with the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, which has the implicit message that prior prophets, prophets before President Nelson, were not as in tune with the Lord and not understanding of the scriptures enough, especially the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, to make the church 
follow those revelations. Somewhere along the way, the church got out of harmony with the revelations, and now it is up to President Nelson to come back and steady the ark. In this way, as well as in other ways that I've mentioned before, the current leadership of the church seems to have little to no problem with throwing past leaders of the church under the bus. They didn't get it right. We're getting it right. And we're not getting it right just because we have a new revelation. We're getting it right because we're bringing the church back into order with the original revelations on which the church was founded. Put another way, President Nelson cannot say that he is making changes in the church in order to align it with previous revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants without at the same time saying that prior presidents have been out of line with those same revelations. Oh, and in Elder Cook's comments, we have another instance of this idea I have that people who speak in general conference do know what other speakers are going to say. Now, Elder Cook is going to reference back to what President Nelson said when he introduced Elder Cook. So it would make more sense that Elder Cook would know what President Nelson was going to say in this regard. And yet this is another instance of a speaker quoting the words of the speaker who immediately preceded him in general conference. After President Nelson said, in each ward, the Lord's Youth Battalion, that's the second time he mentioned it, remember, is led by a bishop, a dedicated servant of God. And then he goes on in speaking of the bishop saying, his first and foremost responsibility is to care for the young men and young women of his ward. Well, in the talk immediately after this, Elder Cook is going to quote that phrase from President Nelson's talk. And here's what he says. Here's what Elder Cook says. As President Nelson just taught, Quote, the bishop's first and foremost responsibility is to care for the young men and young women of his ward. So it's pretty obvious that Elder Cook knew exactly what President Nelson was going to say in the talk he gave in general conference immediately before Elder Cook talked. Otherwise, Elder Cook could not quote President Nelson word for word in the statement he made immediately preceding. So that's the second instance of this I've identified in this general conference alone. The next talk is by Mark L. Pace, the Sunday School General President, where he's going to talk about the Come Follow Me manual. That would be the manual that Latter-day Saints are supposed to study at home as a family. And he once again hits upon this theme in general conference about the adversary increasing his attacks upon the Latter-day Saints. In this complex world today, this is not easy i.e. the increasing of our faith in Jesus Christ and the strengthening of our families. The adversary is increasing his attacks on faith and upon us and our families at an exponential rate. To survive spiritually, we need counter strategies and proactive plans. Well, the counter strategies and the proactive plans he's going to talk about are the directives to study the Come Follow Me manual at home. Now, the way this was introduced is that the meeting schedule went from three hours to two hours, and the Come Follow Me manual was supposed to be studied at home by the family in place of that third hour that we're no longer attending church. But this is not enough for some people. Some people want to see it as much more than that. And the speaker quotes somebody to that effect. As one sister insightfully shared, he says, the goal is not to make church one hour shorter. It is to make church six days longer. And at this point, one can only roll one's eyes at this phenomenon within Mormonism. And I'm sure it is there in other religions as well. It was certainly there among the Jewish leaders of Jesus's day that we read about in the New Testament. We read about how they would make their phylacteries broad and even enlarge the hems of their garments so that they could show off how righteous they were. There is this idea of we do what we're asked 
but only the average people, only the average righteous people do what they're asked. The really righteous people can show that they're better than the average righteous people by doing more than what they're asked. And this is what I see here in this statement. The average righteous member is going to study the Come Follow Me manual at home for that extra hour on Sunday. And frankly, there aren't that many Mormons who are going to do that. But the average righteous member is going to do that. But now the super righteous member is going to be studying it every freaking day of the week. So as one sister insightfully shared, the goal is not to make church one hour shorter. It is to make church six days longer. Look how righteous I am. And the problem is not just that this phenomenon exists in the church. The problem is that this kind of sentiment is being quoted approvingly by a general authority in general conference to give the imprimatur of approval upon this self-righteous attitude and thereby encouraging this kind of spiritual competition among the members of the church and also reinforcing the idea among the members that even if they are doing everything that they're supposed to do, everything that they're told to do as members of the church, and that is saying an awful lot, even if they manage to do all of that, they still are not doing enough because they could be doing more. And so it is perhaps not surprising in this context that one of the women in the general women's session is going to be giving a talk on how women in the church feel inadequate, that they just can't measure up, that they simply cannot do everything that the church asks them to do. And it is therefore especially insidious that this quote from this anonymous church member about how self-righteous she is and how it is that she's going to make church six days longer, that this quote is attributed to a woman. It is little wonder that the members of the church in general and the women members of the church specifically suffer to such a high degree with feelings of inadequacy. The next talk is called Consistent and Resilient Trust by Elder L. Todd Budge. Hmm, L. Todd Budge. Well, now we have an L. Todd to go along with our D. Todd. Frankly, I didn't see anything worth commenting on in this talk, so we'll just pass this one by. Don't you wish you could do this when you're actually watching General Conference? The next talk is After the Trial of Our Faith by Elder Jorge M. Alvarado. And once again, in this talk, we encounter another General Conference death march story. We have a person who becomes ill and yet is not healed by priesthood power. Here's the story. When I was a child, Frank Talley, a member of the church, offered to help my family fly from Puerto Rico to Salt Lake City so we could be sealed in the temple. But soon obstacles began to appear. Now he's packing a lot of information here in this one sentence. That's one of the problems with only having 10 minutes to give a talk. You have to really condense it down. And sometimes it's difficult to understand exactly what it is that's being said, especially when it's being heard in verbal form. When you read it, you can stop and unpack it a little bit like I'm going to do here. But when Elder Jorge Alvarado was a child, his family was going to fly from Puerto Rico to Salt Lake City so that they could be sealed in the temple. Now stop here and think about this. Jorge is a child. His family is going to fly to Salt Lake City to be sealed in the temple. So he's going to have to go with them. And obviously his brothers and sisters are going to have to go with him on the trip too so that they can all be sealed together as a family. This becomes important in the next sentence. But soon obstacles began to appear. One of my sisters, Marivid, became ill. Now this is a problem because they're in Puerto Rico, his sister becomes ill, and this is going to be an obstacle now because how is his sister going to fly to Salt Lake City to be with the family in the Salt Lake Temple so they can all be sealed together? Then he says, unsettled, my parents prayed about what to do. What do we do? Now this is a dilemma. Do we stay here in Puerto Rico with our daughter who's ill, or do we fly to Salt Lake City without her and just have everybody else sealed except for our daughter who's ill and back in Puerto Rico? This is the problem. Unsettled, my parents prayed about what to do 
and still felt prompted to make the journey. So apparently they feel prompted to make the journey without Marivad. They trusted that as they faithfully followed the Lord's prompting, our family would be watched over and blessed. And we were. Now, this is a rather vague ending to the story because he doesn't say what happened with Marivid. What we know is that a priesthood blessing almost certainly was given to Marivid. What we know is that she did not recover from her illness due to the priesthood blessing, even though it would have been for the best possible purpose of traveling with her family to Salt Lake City in order to be sealed together as a family. And the reason we know this didn't happen is because if it had happened, Elder Alvarado would have been telling us about it. That would have been front and center in the story, but he doesn't tell us that. So it's unclear what happened here. Did they take the daughter, the sick daughter, to Salt Lake City with them and get sealed together anyway? Or did they leave her behind in Puerto Rico and get sealed together as a family minus this ill daughter? As I say, Elder Alvarado does not actually say what happened, which makes me think that it was the latter thing that happened. They left the ill daughter behind because she wasn't healed due to a priesthood blessing or the prayers to God. She remained ill. She wasn't able to make the trip, so they went without her. Once again, this vague ending. They trusted, his parents trusted, they trusted that as they faithfully followed the Lord's prompting, the prompting to go to Salt Lake City apparently without the daughter, our family would be watched over and blessed and we were, but he doesn't say how. So once again, fortunately, the daughter apparently does not die. She just doesn't recover from her illness in time to go to Salt Lake City for the family ceiling. So this is why I put this under the category of priesthood blessings that do not work. If there were a priesthood that worked, the story would have been Marivid received a priesthood blessing, she was healed from her illness, and she was able to accompany our family to Salt Lake City where we were all sealed together as a family. And that would have been the story. Indeed, the fact that this is the ending of the story is suggested by the fact that now he quotes Elder Holland as saying, some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come at all. No, he doesn't actually say that. He might as well say that. He says, some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. So in other words, they're going to come, but just after you're dead. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Okay. They'll come either now, they'll come later, or they'll come when we're dead. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. I can actually do a better Bogart when I'm not hoarse. Oh, and then later on in his talk, he actually does conclude his story, but it's still a bit ambiguous. But I think the ambiguity, once again, is because his sister did not accompany them to Salt Lake City. Here's what he says. My family's trip to the temple years ago was difficult. Well, why was it difficult? Well, because of the daughter. My family's trip to the temple years ago was difficult, but as we approached the temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, my mother, full of joy and faith, said, we are going to be okay. The Lord will protect us. But why do they need the protection of the Lord when they're approaching the temple? It's not clear at all. Then he says, we were sealed as a family and my sister recovered. So you see, he says these things as separate things. We were sealed as a family and my sister recovered. Well, did she recover in Salt Lake City? Did she recover before they went to Salt Lake City? Of course she didn't because otherwise that's what he'd be saying. There wouldn't be any question about what it is that happened. The ambiguity is intentionally inserted into the story in order to make it sound more miraculous than it actually was. 
And this is a strategy that is used frequently in talks where a story is told that really doesn't have anything miraculous in it, but we want to tell the story in such a way as that the audience will understand that something miraculous happened, and therefore we start speaking in vague and ambiguous terms in order to give that impression. The ambiguity is there to cover the fact that there was nothing miraculous that happened, but to give the impression that even though nothing miraculous happened, something miraculous really happened. Now, the last talk in the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference is given by another apostle. It's given by Elder Ronald A. Rasband. It's called Standing by Our Promises and Covenants. And there's really not that much remarkable about this talk. I actually kind of like Elder Rasband. He seems like a likable kind of character. If I had to choose which of the three stooges he reminds me most of, you know it would not be Mo, it would not be Larry, yeah, it would be Curly. And I've always liked Curly the best out of the three stooges. And I think most people do. He once again picks up on this thread from Elder Cook that in making the changes to the youth program, they are aligning the church and the organization of the church with the revealed truth from the Doctrine and Covenants. Once again, tacitly throwing past leaders under the bus. And this is what he says here. In this very session, our dear prophet, President Russell M. Nelson and Elder Quentin L. Cook have announced adjustments that will refocus our attention on youth and align our organizations with revealed truth. See, it's going to align our organizations with revealed truth. We're steadying the ark. We're getting it back on the path it was supposed to be on. For some reason, don't know why, the past presidents of the church didn't understand the scriptures as well as we do. We're not as in touch with the spirit of the Lord as we are. The ark started to wobble, but we're here to steady it and get it back on track and align it with revealed truth. And once again, this is another example of a speaker in general conference knowing what other speakers are going to say in their talks. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to say that President Russell M. Nelson and Elder Quentin L. Cook have announced adjustments, which they did earlier in this very same session, have announced adjustments that will refocus our attention on youth and align our organizations with revealed truth. So that's three examples I've identified of that in general conference, and we are only through the second session. And finally, Elder Rasband talks about the gathering of Israel. And I'm just going to mention this in closing. The gathering of Israel is something that was taught by Joseph Smith and in the early revelations, by the way, the revelations that they are <laughs> that they are getting more in line with by reorganizing the youth program. The early revelations speak clearly of the gathering of Israel as a literal gathering that Israel, that the Latter-day Saints are going to be gathered to New Jerusalem and then war is going to be unleashed upon everybody else. And then Jesus is going to come and the new Jerusalem is going to be caught up to meet the city of Enoch coming down from heaven. And then the second coming is going to be ushered in. The point is, is that this was a very literal gathering that was prophesied of and that is spoken of in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price. And never let it be forgotten that we still have an article of faith which says we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and that the city of Zion will be built upon this, the American continent. But in spite of all that, President Nelson, while still talking about the gathering, has completely changed the definition. Now his definition of the gathering is anything but a literal gathering. Instead, his definition of the gathering is actually more like missionary work. That's really what he's talking about in the gathering. And this is what Elder Rasband says in quoting President Nelson. The gathering is the most important thing taking place on earth today, President Nelson has said as he has traveled the world. So he's quoting President Nelson here and he goes on. When we speak of the gathering, this is the quote from President Nelson. When we speak of the gathering, we are simply saying this fundamental truth. Every one of our Heavenly Father's children on both sides of the veil deserves to hear the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is 
President Nelson's new definition of the gathering. It really doesn't have anything to do with a literal gathering, at least not the literal gathering that is taught in the foundational scriptures of the LDS Church, that everybody on both sides of the veil, the living and the dead, deserve to hear the message of the restored gospel. That's what the gathering is now. So even while President Nelson is changing the youth program and thereby aligning the church more with the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. At the same time, he is changing the definition of the gathering in the Doctrine and Covenants to make it something completely different from what is talked about there. So I guess it's a case of one step forward, two steps backward. But what I'm saying is if we take the revelations seriously and if we take the restoration seriously, as much as Joseph Smith taught that the saints would be gathered and actually located on the map and dedicated areas for the gathering of the saints and the building up of the city of Zion, that is something that is in the past. For any members of the church who still hold out hope in their hearts that the saints are actually going to be gathered back to Jackson County, Missouri, you can let that hope go. This is the signal and the message that President Nelson is giving you. There is no more gathering. There is no more literal gathering. There's not going to be a building up of any city of Zion. Those prophecies contained in the LDS scriptures will not be fulfilled. Instead, the gathering is now redefined as simply preaching the gospel, giving everybody the opportunity to hear the message of the restored gospel. That is the gathering. Let me read this once again. When we speak of the gathering, this is President Nelson, we are simply saying this fundamental truth. Every one of our Heavenly Father's children on both sides of the veil deserves to hear the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, this runs into some trouble theologically because President Nelson is also beating the drum loud and long about the second coming of Jesus being just around the corner. And yet, according to the revelations given to Joseph Smith, and contained in the Doctrine and Covenants, as well as in the Book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, there is something that has to happen, something that has to happen before Jesus comes again. And that something that has to happen is a literal gathering of Israel of the Latter-day Saints to one location in real time and real space and building up of a real city of Zion, which is going to be caught up to meet the city of Enoch coming down from heaven with Jesus before and right before the second coming is ushered in. So within Mormon theology, if there is no literal gathering and no literal building up of the city of Zion, there is not going to be any second coming. It's like love and marriage. You can't have one without the other. Well, that's the end of the talks in the second session, the Saturday afternoon session of October 2019 General Conference. That's about all I have for this episode. Well, as you know, this is the fourth episode of Radio Free Mormon in four days. I released one episode Tuesday, another Wednesday, another Thursday, and another today, Friday, March 27th of 2020. And that's on top of the regularly scheduled episode that was released last Sunday. So really, all in all, five episodes of Radio Free Mormon have issued in the last six days. This is part and parcel of my effort to try and keep spirits up of those of you who are sheltering at home due to the coronavirus. And I will tell you, this has really worn me out. I'm going to have to take a break now, at least for the weekend, from this kind of pace that I have set for myself. If you really need to hear more Radio Free Mormon, can I suggest that in the interim, you go back to episode one and start re-listening. Believe me, they're just as good listening to the second time as they were the first time. At least that's my humble opinion. So until next time, remember, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. Stay at least six feet away from the nearest person. Remember, social distancing is your friend. And together, we will whip this pandemic. Until next time, 
This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's, it's the end of the world as we know it. Not